to continue the kingdom of heaven thing that Bethany started today, which I love. The kingdom of heaven is like a man whose life has been set free, free. The kingdom of heaven is it's like a people, like a church that give their life to the oppressed, the weak, the underdog, the unborn. It's the kingdom of heaven. And today's Right to Life Sunday. I just want to thank all the people in this church who uh, stand on the front lines of uh, giving their lives for the unborn. And it's just exciting to be, about, be at a church that, that is just for the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven breaking in the way we heard through the story this morning and the way it breaks out through a people. So, okay, uh, we are in Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 12. We love to stand for the reading of God's word. If that's something you can do or do in your heart, let's stand for Mark chapter 12, beginning with verse 13. And I think we'll just keep this baptism tank out, you know. Um, we keep wanting to put away until someone calls us and says they want to be baptized. So does that sound good? <laughs> All right, good. <clears throat> then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus with a question. Rabbi, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise the offspring for his brothers. It's called the Leverite marriage, and yes, it is in the first five books of our Bible. Well, now, there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. So at the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, are you not an heir because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven and now about the dead rising, the resurrection. Have you not read in the book of Moses in the account of the burning bush how God said to Moses, I am, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Our God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. You may take your seat. So if you've been coming, you understand the context. Uh, Jesus is in Jerusalem. It's Passover. Passover is approaching just days away. This is the highest uh, holiday on the Jewish calendar. So Jews from all over the world are starting to descend uh, upon Jerusalem. They're arriving. And what we need to know is that up until this point in the Gospels, whenever uh, Jesus is opposed 
Um, it, it's usually coming from the common people. It's coming from locals, from local rabbis or local Pharisees, local Jews. But now Jesus in Jerusalem, he's coming face to face with official power, with institutional power. And this confrontation, as, as you can tell, uh, if you've been here, um, it's, it's building and it's going somewhere. And just a few days from now, it's going to end with a crucifixion. Now, here's where I want to caution us, because years ago, I remember hearing it preached by someone. Poor Jesus. You know, here's what power does to Jesus and people like Jesus. It opposes them, and then it crucifies them. As we are in this last week of Jesus' life, and as he's making his way towards uh, the crucifixion, I do not want us to fall prey to seeing Jesus as a victim in any way. Jesus is not a victim. Jesus doesn't want us to see him as a victim because Jesus is in complete control of absolutely everything that happens to him. He is the one who is calling the shots. He is the one who is orchestrating even every last detail of what's happening. I mean, this starts when he enters Jerusalem. He didn't just sneak into Jerusalem. Uh, he rode in on what I call the, Mosi- the Messiah mobile. Um, that, that, that grand entrance when he said, go get me uh, that, that baby donkey. Um, when he rides in that way, he is declaring to everyone that he is the one, the coming one, the Messiah. The next day, when he shows up at that temple, Again, I, I, I want you to just get this in your mind, what, what this, is. Um, this is. This is the halls of power. Uh, we, we live today in a world where, where power is separated, uh, but not so in the ancient world. In that world, there's no separation of political or religious or even economic power. Uh, so when you think that temple and everything that goes on there, You need to be thinking uh, things like the Vatican or the Capitol building in D.C. Um, And also because these temples were the banks of the ancient world, because money, of course, was safe in God's house, uh, this is also Wall Street. And it's into this that Jesus walks into that place and acts like he owns it. I mean, he calls it my house. He rearranges the furniture like it's his house. And then he pretty much says, he says, this whole enterprise is going out of business. It's done, it's obsolete, it's finished. (laughs) Wow. Imagine someone saying that today. And so to put this in Narnia language, (laughs) the great lion is on the move. He is no victim. Every day, Jesus is making his way into into these halls of power, and in every detail, every conversation, he is in charge. He is communicating who he is and what he came to do. And so in our text today, here they come. In response to this lion, uh, this time it's the Sadducees. And I just want to start with with us getting a grasp of who the Sadducees are. Uh, The Sadducees are the cultural, the political, the religious elites of Jesus' day. 
Their name itself derives from a man in the Bible whose name is Zadok. Uh, Zadok is the high priest when David is the king. And, and so these Zadokis, these Sadducees, are descendants of that high priest. Now, Ezekiel describes the new temple uh, that will be built, and look at what it describes. Uh, one of the texts in this description, it says, but the priests who are the Levites and descendants of Zadok and who faithfully carried out the duties of my sanctuary are to come near and to minister before me. And so those words, priest and Levite and Zadok, or Zadokhi, from which we get Sadducee, those words are all synonymous. A Sadducee is a Levite, and a Levite is a priest, and the priest is the one who's been put in charge of the temple. And as I said, because that temple is not just a religious place, but it's political, it's, it's an economic uh, center of the whole Jewish world, a Sadducee, you need to understand, is more than just a priest or, or a pastor or a reverend, but is also a senator, a congressman, a Supreme Court justice, a CEO. And so during the time of Jesus, uh, the Sadducees are, are the smallest of, of all these uh, sects or groups. Um, they're about 5% of the Jewish population at this time, yet they hold 80% of the seats in the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is the Jewish uh, Senate or Supreme Court. So they run the show, they are the show. Now let's just even talk about building, um, buildings, because where religious, political, and economic power takes place, just think about in our world. I don't know if you've ever been to the Vatican, it's stunning. Uh, I don't know if you've been to Washington, D.C., even uh, that whole area. It's just the buildings are beautiful. Uh, driving down Wall Street, you, you, it, it has this wow factor. See, all of, even the buildings themselves feed the sense of power, status, and importance of the people who run these things. And that's going on in Jesus' day. I mean, imagine uh, being a Jew Jewish pilgrim um, and, and all of a sudden you're descending upon Jerusalem and uh, you're, you're just approaching this and, and, and you're looking at it and, and, and it just wows you. And we know, we know this is going on because in Mark chapter 13, just a few verses from where we are, it, it says, as Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, Rabbi, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. And now again, to the Jewish pilgrim, this is more than just the most impressive uh, building in the world. This, this is first and foremost God's house. God lives in that space. And what we need to know is that God never asked his people to build a house that big where the platform itself on which the house is built is three football fields by five football fields. That's all Herod's doing. It's, it's, it's Herod's way of not only controlling everything that goes on there, but through that to have more control in his empire. 
So when Rome comes and takes over, they don't shut any of this stuff down. They allowed for Jewish worship and practice to exist with one caveat, Rome is in complete control. In fact, the prestigious position of high priest was given to its highest bidder, and it was bought for an insane amount of money. Remember, these Sadducees who who run this, these are the ones who at Jesus' trial say to Pilate, we have no king but Caesar. Just think about that. They sold out to Caesar. They were immersed in Caesar's world, in Roman culture. They they could afford it. They could afford uh, all that Rome brought to the world, the games, the spas, the theaters. In fact, the historian Josephus says, uh, he says uh, that the Sadducees became so Romanized that the evening temple services were canceled because so many of the priests were watching the wrestling at the Roman gymnasium. So what's going on in Jerusalem? And think about what a priest is called to be, what God calls a priest to be, called to be like God, to declare the praises of God. They're they're set apart by God to be an advocate for the people, pointing the people to God. And yet here they are. They are in bed with Rome. They have become Rome and they are using all of this to oppress their own people. They did it by uh, padding the, the temple tax. Uh, they developed all these money laundering schemes. They, they exploited, because, because remember every worshiper, the way you worship God in this day is you came with your lamb, but that lamb had to be without stain or blemish. It had to be perfect, and who determined this? The priest determined this, and... Be like, that one's not good enough, but we, 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 we have one for you. We know it's expensive. It's $200, but, but at least, you know, uh, you can worship God now. And, and th- these are just all the kinds of things that they developed, and through it, they became incredibly wealthy. In fact, archaeologists have uncovered their homes uh, in Jerusalem. They lived in the posh place. They lived in luxury Uh, They had these mansions adorned with Rome and everything, including running water, uh, pools, servants, all of the above. Many of them had winter homes 15 miles away in a resort town called Jericho. Remember, you were born into this. You didn't go to school to become a priest, to become a Sadducee. These are the descendants of Zadok. And I think with all the other Jewish groups uh, that we read about in the Gospels, I'm pretty confident that I could make an argument that Jesus appreciated certain aspects of them. He he appreciated certain aspects of the Pharisees and the Zealots and even uh, a group that isn't mentioned, the Essenes. I don't think Jesus liked one thing about the Sadducees. The cursing of the fig tree, that's a statement about them. They are the fig tree, and, and, and their corruption uh, through this act of Jesus is, is, is where this whole thing is going. This whole enterprise is going to be cursed. Uh, the cleansing of the temple is a statement about all the filth that they have brought into God's house. 
In the parable of the tenants in the vineyard, uh, the tenants are the, fair, are the Sadducees. The vineyard is God's house, which, which God has entrusted to them, uh, this, this beautiful garden uh, that's not just for God's people, but for the nations, and they hijacked it and made it their own. In fact, if you want to know who kills Jesus, from an earthly perspective, it's these guys. And if you want to know who tried to snuff out the early church, at least uh, in its beginning, beginning days, read Acts 4 today, uh, or read Acts chapter 5. In Acts chapter 5, it says, Then the high priest and his associates, who were members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. And now we're getting into what's going on in their hearts towards Christ and his movement. They're jealous. So they arrested the apostles and they put them in a public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. And the angel said, go stand in the temple courts and tell the people all about this new life that you have in Christ. <laughs> that puts a smile on my face, that story. Why? What's behind this jealousy? Why are they uh, so intent on killing Jesus and, and, and killing this whole movement? Yes, there might have been some theological differences that the Sadducees had with Jesus, but that, I don't think, is what's driving it. What's driving it is that Jesus and this movement is a threat to their lives, it's a threat to their comfort, it's a threat to their wealth, it's a threat to their privileged life, to their status, and they weren't willing to give it up. And this scares me. Because in my world, I probably live at their level. We all do. Are we willing to give it up? And this is where I have to ask myself this question. What kind of hold does Caesar right now have on my life? On my faith? On my walk? Now, their question that they bring, they, that they bring to Jesus, it's, it's this crazy hypothetical situation. Um, it's one in which this woman has seven different husbands. And so then they ask Jesus, when, you, when she gets into the new age, uh, which one of these husbands will be married to her? Now, here's, here's what we need to know. The, the, the Sadducees actually don't believe in an afterlife. They don't even believe in a resurrection. They're minimalists in, in, in every kind of way. They're secularists. Uh, the Bible to them is just the first five books, what, the, what they call the books of Moses. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They don't believe in the supernatural. They, they don't believe in angels, demons. They don't believe in a heaven and a hell. They don't believe in miracles. They don't believe in resurrection. They don't believe in an age to come. So according to them, we live and we die, and, and our life on earth is about keeping Torah and to worship God through sacrifices, all of which, all of which we are in charge of. And so you have to understand, they're not coming to Jesus with this honest question, like Jesus in the afterlife, here's the situation, how's this gonna get played out? 
they're actually using this, this, this silly hypothetical to make the resurrection and the age to come look silly, and more importantly, to make Jesus look silly. That's the intent of their heart, and Jesus knows it. That's why his response is so strong. He says, you're badly mistaken. And he points out their two heirs. He says, your first heirs, you don't know the scriptures. Wow. Of all people, these are the ones that uh, would posture themselves as the one who, who most know the scriptures. They're to teach the scriptures. Jesus says, you don't know the scriptures. And you don't know the power of God. And then Jesus goes to the Bible. And there are so many clear teachings on, on the resurrection. And again, uh, we're talking the Old Testament, the Bible at this time. Uh, texts like Isaiah 25, 26, he could go to Ezekiel 36 and 37. He could go to Daniel 12, uh, the first couple of verses there. There's so many uh, texts in Job, uh, especially Job 19. But to a Sadducee, you have to understand that all those books of the Bible are extra biblical. These, these are not inspired books uh, of God. Only the books of Moses are. So look at verses 26 and 27. Now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You are badly mistaken. Jesus goes to their scripture. He quotes from Exodus 3, where God says to Moses, I am. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. I don't know if you caught it. I mean, his, his, his point is so basic, we almost miss it, but it's, it's absolutely brilliant. I mean, here's Jesus' point. His point is, is that if Abraham and Isaac and Jacob are dead and no more, God should say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but no, God says to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And see, then if you know anything about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and this, this part of the story, uh, how God just set his love upon them, his affection upon them and their family, how, how God just binds himself to them through covenant, this, this covenantal love, and, it, and it's through this covenant then where God just lavishes upon them this unconditional, never forsaking, everlasting love, a love that God will sum up later when he's talking about the, uh, his people, you are mine. And I just think about when we love someone, a child, a spouse, a parent, a friend. I think the thing that we all fear is when that relationship moves to the past tense. We never, we, we never want to have to say, I had a son, I had a daughter. We never want to say, I, I, I had a parent, I had a spouse. But here's the deal. What does it mean when God 
places his love on us. Because here's where Jesus is asking the right question, do we know the power of God? Because think about it, when God places his love, it, it, it's, it's not a fickle love that's here today and gone tomorrow. It's a covenantal love that he places on Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's the same kind of love that he invites us into, this, this covenantal love. And we place ourselves in this covenantal love. Do you see then how we can never be past tense? I mean, let that sink in, because if we don't know this, then like the Sadducees, we're badly mistaken, because we probably don't know the scriptures or the power of God. God could never be the God of the dead. Or think about it from this angle. In Jeremiah 31, God's speaking of this, this covenantal love that he's entered into with Israel, he says, I've loved you with an everlasting love. And I want us to see what this means. There's massive implications here because we know God is everlasting and now he's saying his love is everlasting and can you see now if an everlasting God who loves, his love is everlasting, doesn't that make the people everlasting. This is how God's love can never be past tense. It's, it's, it's eternal. And the eternal nature of it makes us eternal. Now there's someone in the Bible who I think makes sense of this as well as anyone. His name is Job. And I, I, I think the reason why, there, there's two reasons why, why, why Job, besides the fact that God inspired him to give us the book of Job, but, but Job is a man who is in covenant relationship with God. His heart is bound to God and he knows how, how God's heart is just so bound to him. And then when you apply pain and suffering to this, uh, pain and suffering, then when you're in this kind of relationship, cause you to wrestle deeply with God and to wrestle over the deep things of God and the deep realities. And Job, this is what the whole book of Job is about. And in Job 14, Job, Job says, God, if only you would put me in the grave, that you would hide me in the grave until your anger has passed. And Job's life at this moment is in such pain that, that he just wants to tap out. He wants to, he, he, he says, just put me in the grave. But then he says, God, after, after you've put me in the grave, would you set a time to remember me? And remember there is the word resur resurrect. God, would you, would you put me in, in the grave, but then would you set a time to resurrect me? And this causes then Job to ask the all-important question, maybe the most important question a person could ever ask. He says, but if a man dies, will he rise again? And then Job answers his own question. He says, God, I will wait for my renewal, for my resurrection to come. And see, what you see in all of this is Job is experiencing agony and pain, but out of that, he has 
He has hope. He has massive hope, something that the Sadducee actually lacks. It's the hope, actually, that God can say, that we can say, God, when, 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 when I am dead, when, when, when my life is hidden in the grave, when the casket is closed over me, God, I know then that you, that you will remember me, that you will resurrect me. And see, this massive hope that, that Job has in the resurrection has deep roots because listen to what he says next. He says, God, you, you will call for me and I will answer you for you long. You long for the ones your hands have made. That's what his hope is rooted in. this longing that God has for Job. And long here means this intense, passionate, all-consuming love. So what Job is saying is, God, I know you love me so much. Your love and longing for me is, is so intense. It's, it's so committed. It's so unfailing. It's so everlasting that your call, even though I'm dead, will resurrect me. And for Job, the resurrection is so real to him because of what it's rooted in. It's rooted in the all-consuming love of an all-powerful God. And this is why Job then can give us maybe one of the greatest statements in the entire Bible about the resurrection. In Job 19, he says, I know, I know that my redeemer lives. And, and a redeemer is, is someone who reaches into our brokenness, our emptiness, our hurt, our pain, and buys our life back. A redeemer is someone who takes everything that has gone wrong and makes it right. And Job in Job in, in chapter 19 says, I know that my redeemer lives and that in the end, he will stand upon the earth. Most literally, he will stand upon my grave. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh, I will see him. I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I and not another, how my heart yearns within me. And here you have the, the yearning heart of Job meeting the longing heart of God, and that's covenant. Covenant, two hearts that are intimately and wholeheartedly bound together. And if this covenant is, is with God, what this means is resurrection, because God is not the God of the dead. He is God of the living. And I see these same things coming to play. I know in, in, in small ways, but, but profound ways. Uh, when Jesus raises Jairus' daughter, uh, he, he goes up into a room where she's just a corpse. And the first thing he does is he takes her by the hand. And see, this is, this is a picture of, of, of his heart, which is so bound to, to, to this one who, whom his hands have made which causes him to say, little girl, it's time to wake up. 
or when he goes to his friend, friend's funeral out of, out of just longing for his friend, uh, one that his hands have, have made, uh, quoting from Job, uh, Jesus called out, Lazarus, Lazarus, I'm calling for you. And Lazarus answered and came forth. Paul picks up on this in the New Testament when he says, for I am convinced that neither death nor life nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Nothing can separate us from his love. This week I was reflecting on a good friend of mine who passed years ago. Um, It was his birthday this week and I always make a point to just uh, have a day where uh, I just think about Derek. Derek Tagus uh, used to be the youth pastor at our church, and when he was here as our youth pastor, he was far more than just a colleague. Um, we became just really, really great friends. And I'll be honest, like, uh, sometimes when I'm reflecting on someone like Derek who, who, who's passed, um, it makes me question sometimes, like, God, are you... Are you real? Like, like what, if, what if all this stuff isn't true? What, what, what if Derek is just no more? But just reading these simple words of Jesus when he says, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. I am the God of Derek. And we can apply that to, to whoever you're thinking about right now. What I love about this text is not only do the Sadducees disbelieve the, rev- uh, the resurrection, but they also disbelieve, of course, the whole afterlife that, that goes with that. And, and so Jesus now starts talking about the age to come, something that we probably don't talk about enough or even think about. And I don't know if you ever ask questions like, what's it gonna be like? Well, this is a tantalizing text. I mean, verse 25, where Jesus says, He says, when the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given into marriage. They'll be like the angels in heaven. I read that and I'm like, whoa, (laughs) what does this mean? I mean, that what, there's not gonna be any weddings. Uh, There's not gonna be marriage in heaven. And if you're like me, you're probably thinking, now wait a second, Uh, this doesn't sound that exciting. No, no marriage, like, is Jesus here suggesting in the age to come that we're all gonna be just friends, you know, in, in, in these platonic relationships. Uh, when we start to think there, that's when Jesus would probably look at us, though, and say, I don't think you know the power of God. Because I do, I, I, I do know this, I know that right now we can't even begin to imagine the age to come and all that it will be. It, it, it's like we're trying to look at it or think about it through, through the lenses of this age. But, but this age, that age to come, it's, it's gonna be characterized by Jesus' words when he says, behold, I'm making all things new. And, and then how do we even begin to, to imagine that? How do, how do we begin to imagine uh, an age where, where all things are made new, an age 
where, where everything that is broken is repaired, where, where, where every sadness, in a sense, becomes untrue, when, when our Redeemer is actually going to reach into all the chaos of our world and the chaos of our li- lives and make it all right. An age when everything is gonna be more. It's gonna be more, not less. It's gonna be more meaningful. It's gonna be more joyful, pleasurable, tasteful, peaceful by a thousand times. And now apply that to marriage. Whatever marriage is, it it, it will be more by by a thousand times. It's not going to be less than But I think I can tell us why it's gonna be more because even the moment that that day comes, it's a day that our Bible depicts as a great wedding itself. And our Bible teaches us in its own way that the best things in this present age, the greatest pleasures that we enjoy now, its joys, the most satisfying realities, the most meaningful experiences that we have in this world, our best friendships, even the best marriage in the history of the world, I promise you it will be less than a drop in the ocean when we see Jesus, our bridegroom. Because God made us for himself to be in covenant with him where his heart is bound to our heart. And he made our hearts to know him to be in relationship to him, to be bound to him. God, Jesus, is the bridegroom. He is the marriage that every marriage on this earth points to, and it's the marriage that every single one of us is invited into. Do you know that? Do you know right now the power of God? Who are you? What are you doing here? Are you a Sadducee? Living your cush, comfortable, privileged life, oblivious to the power of God, which is rooted in the love of God. Or can you say, you're actually living right now in this marriage, the marriage for which you were made. I do know this, he calls you. We heard it this morning in Mark. God is still calling. Have you answered? And I think about how so many of us have grown into this understanding of there being an eternity. I mean, for most of us, we know there is eternity, partly because the Bible says that God placed eternity in our hearts, and so we have a sense of a heaven and a hell. And then this pushes so many of us then to have a relationship with God, even sometimes out of fear. The Bible actually teaches the opposite. It says, have a relationship with God. Get in this marriage that we are made for. And you will know that there is an eternity. And see, this is what the most religious people of Jesus' day lacked. They lacked a relationship with the living God and therefore They were clueless about eternity. And the way that you and I know the power of God is is by seeing the love of God, that intense longing. Do you know that longing that Job speaks about? That God longs for you? 
Just look at him. Look at Christ. His whole life screams at us. With all that I am and all that I have, I give myself to you. And the way we experience this power is with our lives, saying back to him, Jesus, with all that I am and all that I have, I give myself to you. When we do this, we will know that he is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living, that he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God, if any of us this morning have drifted from that love, from you, this is the beauty of repentance that we can just turn from our drifting and return to a God whose arms are wide open. Irrespective of who we are, or what we've done, or how badly we've blown it, God. You're, you love us. May there be repentance in this room this morning, in Jesus' name.